The NASH Take Action podcast series is a CME program brought to you by the American Gastroenterological Association. NASH is the most advanced form of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This six-episode podcast series is ACCME accredited. The series is sponsored by a medical education grant from Novo Nordisk. You can find all six episodes and collect your CME credits at nash.gastro.org. Welcome to the NASH Take Action podcast. I'm Dr. Kenneth Cousy. I'm the Chief of uh, Diabetes and Endocrinology at the University of Florida at Gainesville, North Florida. In this podcast, my colleagues, Drs. Fasiha Kanwal and Jay Shebrook, and I will talk to global leaders in gastroenterology, hepatology, endocrinology, and primary care about the real world, practical implications of screening, diagnosing, and managing people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and its worst consequence, which is steatopatitis and uh, liver cirrhosis. In this episode, we'll talk about managing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic steatopatitis and the importance of managing comorbidities. What are the current and emerging treatment for both non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic steatopatitis? And what are the limitations of the current data for the management of these complex patients? I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Fasiha Kanwal. Hi, Fasiha. Hi, thanks for having me uh, here. I'm Fasiha Kanwal. I'm a gastroenterologist, hepatologist at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And Dr. Jay Shubrook, family medicine. Dr. Jay. Hi, Jay Shubrook, family physician and primary care diabetologist, uh, professor at Torah University of California, and glad to be here. Well, thank you for having both of you. I know you have very busy schedules, but uh, this is an exciting time for NASH. Um, we have uh, a lot of new information coming out. We have work done by a group of experts uh, uh, that has been published in several journals. We'll talk about that. And both of you have been critical in this effort. Now, why is NASH so important and why are the comorbidities associated with NASH something that should be uh, faced by a multidisciplinary team? Fasiha? NASH uh, is important in and of itself given uh, the consequences that patients face uh, both from liver as well as cardiovascular uh, disease endpoints. Um, it's also important because there are lots of patients with NASH that we're seeing in our clinical practice, and the trend is not changing. I think this is something that we'll continue to face in the next few decades to come. Uh, in terms of the comorbidities, I think they're important for uh, multiple different reasons, or actually two reasons. The way I think about it is there is a bidirectional relationship between these comorbidities and NASH NAFLD, and we have to manage them together. Managing comorbidities can reduce the risk of progression of NASH to advanced liver disease. It also will help uh, reduce the likelihood of having suboptimal cardiovascular endpoints. So managing comorbidities is um, the cornerstone, the base, the foundation of managing individuals with NASH. I don't think we can separate these things out Oh no, the patient population. That's excellent. Now, now Jay... Help, help the audience understand which are the comorbidities that you more frequently see and, and a couple of pearls on, on what to do and what is their relationship with fatty liver. 
Sure. So I think the first thing is rather than being a splitter, we should be a lumper because this is a place where we know that cardiovascular, insulin resistance, cardiorenal, and really cardiohepatic are all intertied together. So these are all having similar underlying pathways. And so when you think about fatty liver to NASH, of course, we're worried about two very specific liver-focused complications, such as hepatocellular carcinoma or cirrhosis. And those are horrible and largely preventable outcomes. But most people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH are going to die from cardiovascular disease. And we should take that as a serious marker of yet another indication of the inflammatory conditions associated with insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, and now NASH. So um, in the primary care setting, it should just give us further emphasis to find out who's really at highest risk and to double down on those patients to really make sure they get the right information so they can do lifestyle change and that those who are at higher risk, we make sure that we get a timely referral to a team-based care. Wow, those are great points, Jay and Fasika. And um, for the audience that may not be aware, we discussed this with a group of experts and uh, we got together in July 2020 and we've published uh, with the support of the uh, American Gastroenterological Association who published the, the, a white paper uh, recently in their journal Gastroenterology uh, with simultaneous uh, publication in Diabetes Care, which is the official journal of American Diabetes Association, in the Obesity uh, Journal, which is the official journal of the Obesity Society, and in Metabolism, and uh, followed by a clinical care pathway, um, because I think this is really very, very important. And, and I know that there are a number of emerging treatments uh, that uh, we can do, although, again, no FDA-approved uh, drug yet, many in the in development, but Fasihia, what would you tell today? And, and I think that all fields, I think um, some of the frustration that uh, endocrinologists express to me is that many times we send the patients to the hepatologist, but, but then there's not a treatment or a follow-up. So if you had to speak to your peers, tell them what they can do today until we bridge uh, this gap and for the new drugs under uh, development. Again, there are, I think, two points that um, you alluded to. One is uh, the lack of agreement on uh, what is the best pharmacological treatment for NASH and nephilim. I think that stems from lack of FDA approval for this for this tre- treatment. I think that it's need- needed before we can recommend something or stress upon certain treatments. Uh, and second is something that Jay mentioned before. This is really a team-based uh, care that's needed for this patient population. It's a team sport. Um, and individual uh, specialties are not well suited to manage it completely. Um, so for as a hepatologist, we look to uh, our endocrinology uh, colleagues to guide us in terms of managing a patient, especially with diabetes, because we really, frankly, are not very comfortable with managing diabetes. The field has moved so much so fast. Um, but the treatments that have been tested for in patients with NASH are anti-diabetes medications and treatments. Um, so uh, that's why as a field, as a di- discipline, um, hepatology or hepatologists, they sort of shy away from recommending those treatments because um, they probably are best managed in endocrinology. So part of the clinical career pathway is also to emphasize the importance of team-based approach, emphasize the importance of setting up these collaborations, setting up 
maybe even combined joint clinics where uh, all uh, specialties are co-located um, to best meet the needs of this patient population. So I think that's one uh, reason for for uh, the lack of clarity on what the right treatments are. But I also want to emphasize what you just mentioned, that this might not be the case for much longer. Um, there are some exciting data that are coming out. Um, I am not so sure when exactly we will see those um, recommendations in our practice guidelines or if and when the FDA uh, approval will happen. But at least the field is very promising. In terms of clinical management and clinical um, practical point is we have to and we need to and we do uh, stage um, uh, ascertainment for patients with NASH. People who have clinically significant fibrosis, that's the group that we need to make sure we have a follow-up scheduled with them. Because yes, these treatments might not be available right now. It is going to change. I, I, I like that. I li- I'm going to ask Jay how he sees the future in, in management. But I want to take on one comment you made, uh, that hepatologists are a little bit out of their comfort zone. And I think we all have to get out of our comfort zone uh, to grow and do things better in our personal and professional life. Endocrinologists have been um, beating uh, the bushes with my friends because they have to get uncomfortable and begin ordering FIB4s and imaging tests that they're not used to and they don't want to do because they're very busy. But I think this is critical because we know that there's 10 or 15% of patients that have in our clinics with diabetes have advanced fibrosis. And I'm going to challenge a hepatologist to be a little bit of endocrinologist and start prescribing medication. So we have two that have been uh, reasonably well tested. Uh, one uh, very recently, semaglutide, uh, that has also uh, this approved for type 2 diabetes and recently also approved for obesity. So uh, again, this is simply a weekly formulation. The support staff typically teach the patients how to use it or the pharmacist. So th- that is something that's critical because it promotes weight loss in the weekly formulations of uh, ranging from 12 to 16% over four to six months. The other is pioglitazone, very inexpensive in RVA, costs eight cents a tablet and used at the lower dose of 15 milligrams. It doesn't cost weight gain, uh, uh, which is what uh, the greatest issue is. And at the 30 milligrams as shown in pivens can improve uh, steatopatitis. So these are not very complex medications to use. Uh, but again, we all will have to stretch uh, our comfort of practice. So Jay, what what can you say from, from your other angle, which is primary care? Yeah, so I think that we, we really have some guidance now that we can triage people at their risk. And I think that if we have patients who are at low risk by a FIB4 score for progression, don't be afraid to treat them for the cardiovascular conditions that they have, including NAFLD. So I think you want to work on weight loss. You want to use the right medications for your diabetes. Don't shy away from them. You also want to make sure that you use statins. Um, so you can be very comfortable doing the, the right thing for those patients. Now, if they're intermediate or they're at higher risk, that's when you need help. And you, you want to make sure that you give your patients every aspect and have a chance to get treatments that are specific to their condition. And so you can do the patient a favor by triaging them early and then triaging and sending the person uh, to endocrine or gastroenterology so that they can get care if they need it, if they're higher risk. And again, I don't expect primary care to know all the, the new treatments, 
but there are established treatments that we can keep using. And so I think that's really the most important thing is don't be afraid to use these treatments and those who are lower risk, continue to treat them for their cardiovascular risks that they have, and then identify those who are higher risk and, and use your team. That, that, those are key points. So a very important one is that to remember, none of these drugs that we have are uh, FDA approved. But the point to be made in the diabetes field, now we choose drugs based on comorbidity. So if you have heart failure or chronic kidney disease, SGLT2 inhibitors are the drug of choice. What we want to get the message across is if you have diabetes and NASH, that choose drugs like semaglutide or pioglitazone or even their combination uh, that can be helpful, although we, we need more more data about that. Now, Pasika, two things. Number one, will you briefly explain our non-hepatologists, what the FIB4 is, and, uh, and, and briefly the elastography, and a step forward, what are the limitations in our current management of, of patients? I mean, where do you think that the field is going to go, or how do you see this in two or three years? Uh, so FIT4 um, uh, and uh, elastography are two non-invasive tests that uh, are readily available, relatively cheap to do, um, and would help risk stratify patients with NAFRL that are seen in routine practice uh, in primary care, endocrinology, and even in gastroenterology clinics. FIT4 is a combination of few blood tests that we routinely do combined with age. Calculators are available online, very easy to do. Elastography is something which also can be ordered and could help risk stratify individuals with, with NAFLD based upon their risk of fibrosis. Um, in terms of the future, um, and there are many things that are going to change. I think we will have a fine, more granular um, or finer uh, tools and techniques to risk stratify patients. Um, there are several um, studies and, um, and techniques that are being de- developed. So I think that is going to change. And as we mentioned, um, many new treatments are in the pipeline. Um, both treatments, repurposing treatments um, that are being used for managing metabolic conditions, uh, but also uh, con- uh, treatments that could potentially directly work on the liver. So lo- lots of, I think, exciting advancements that are happening in the field, which uh, I'm sure we will get another chance to bring to our um, uh, to the audience, uh, hopefully in the next few years to come. But in the meanwhile, uh, between now and then, the NASH Clinical Care Pathway is a comprehensive yet simple to follow document um, with clear steps that individuals could follow um, uh, who are managing patients with NAFL and NASH in their clinical practices. Prasika, this is really uh, great. I mean, the clinical care pathway is available in Gastroenterology Journal, uh, the official journal of uh, AGA. And two things that I think are important for audience People ask, well, what if you don't have diabetes? What do I do today? In addition to lifestyle and weight loss, there uh, was a well-known study called PIVNS that showed vitamin E at 800 units a day can uh, improve steatohepatitis. Again, there's been debate, uh, and there's studies also in patients with cirrhosis that that improve with it. Again, not not in uh, randomized controlled trials, but this is important information uh, to have. There's been controversy about increased risk of cardiovascular disease or prostate cancer. Uh, so that's an unsettled debate. Um, and also the diabetes medication we mentioned have shown efficacy in people without a diabetes and NASH. 
And uh, there are many drugs uh, in the pipeline. We don't want to approach that because it would be an entire new podcast, but they involve dual uh, GLP-1 or, or and, and glucagon agonist, uh, thyroid hormone receptor agonist, um, FGF-21 agonist, uh, new PPARs. Uh, so it's a big, uh, big, big field. Now, I'm just going to finish with, uh, with a 30-second uh, comment. I mean, Jay, what is your take-home message in terms of uh, management of patients with NASH? I think the message that I would give to primary care is that we no longer just have to sit and watch and wonder about people and their, their liver. I think that we now can identify those who have fatty liver. We can identify those who are at high risk and there is emerging treatment. So we can do something for our patients. You can do something for everyone to work on those lifestyle modifications, but know that for those who are higher risk, there's new treatments coming. Thank you. That was great, Jay. And again, I, I love your uh, primary care angle because you guys are the ones who are going to really make a difference as you, as you made a difference in the management and the outcomes today uh, of people with diabetes. What about the hepatology angle, Fasiha? From hepatology, um, uh, this is an exciting time. Uh, finally, we will uh, have treatments that we can offer to patients with uh, NASH who are at risk for uh, advanced fibrosis. Uh, all the treatments that you mentioned are, are being tested in individuals with clinically important fibrosis. One treatment that uh, we didn't talk a little bit talk about is the beta-colic acid. Um, uh, there is uh, data on that as well, so that uh, let's add that to our pipeline as well. Uh, but um, uh, optimistic that uh, in addition to lifestyle changes where we're getting more and more data about uh, the specific types of recommendations that we can make to our patients, we will have pharmacological treatments for our patients as well, hopefully in the next few years to come. That's Thank you uh, for helping me here. Yeah, that, that the FDA is still reviewing obitacolic acid and we hope that it will be successful. Uh, it's a bit, there are many additional FXRs, that's the class that are being tested. So that's a big field. And I'm going to move on and just thank both of you uh, for your very, very important clinical practice points. And again, I will remind the audience to check the clinical care pathway in the journal Gastroenterology. And now I'm going to move uh, to our guest, uh, I, I wanted to ask all these issues to somebody who's very relevant in the field of diabetes. I talked to endocrinologist Dr. Bob Echo, immediate past president of medicine and science for the American Diabetes Association, a true leader in uh, public health and diabetes care. This is what he had to say. Thank you, Bob. Thanks you for your time. And I, I couldn't think about somebody more proper to discuss uh, management today, because before we dive into the things we can do to improve uh, the liver, frequently, and I think this is why it's so compelling for primary care and our peer endocrinologists uh, and anybody who's taking care of people with chronic conditions like obesity or diabetes, is the overall management that well exceeds the, the liver care. So you've devoted your career to improving cardiometabolic health, uh, understand very well the, the pathophysiology of dyslipidemia and diabetes. How would you start managing? What would you tell a primary care doctor that asks you what to do with patients that they identify with fatty liver disease? 
Well, first of all, I think it's important for the primary care physician to recognize the relationship of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease to metabolic disorders, such as obesity, such as metabolic syndrome, such as type 2 diabetes. And in those kinds of patients, we need at least the baseline set of liver function tests. It may not need to stop there, but screening and assessment of abnormalities needs to be a stepwise process going forward, Ken. So would you, in a nutshell, tell me why people with fatty liver disease are particularly prone to dyslipidemia, the typical atherogenic dyslipidemia that's so common today? Well, it's not only the dyslipidemia, it's the relationship to other cardiometabolic risk factors. But the lipid disorders relates to an increased production of triglycerides in the liver. Now, fatty liver disease is when there's too much fat stored in the liver, but often associated with the increased production of triglycerides in the liver, there's a secretion of triglycerides in the form of a lipoprotein, and that's specifically the very low-density lipoprotein. So one of the most common lipid abnormalities in patients with fatty liver disease is a high triglyceride level and a low HDL cholesterol. And by the way, these are good bedfellows. Whenever triglycerides go up, HDL cholesterol tends to fall. So that adds to the risk for cardiovascular disease that occurs in patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So knowing that cardiovascular disease and dyslipidemia is so common, uh, I'm sometimes uh, puzzled by primary care doctors uh, not putting them on our typical lipid lowering agents, and particularly statins. So what would the message be for, for primary care on, regarding statin use? Well, many patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease need to be statin treated. Some of these patients have already had an atherosclerotic event, such as a stroke or had peripheral vascular disease or have had a coronary event. But moreover, primary prevention really is very important in patients at high risk for cardiovascular disease, including non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And therefore, statin therapy is a very important strategy going forward. Liver tests being elevated should not be a reason to stop statin therapy under almost all circumstances. If the liver tests were extremely elevated, I think that's one thing you might do to see ultimately whether there is any relationship between the statins and the liver test elevation. But that's an incredibly unusual scenario clinically. Keep the statins going in high-risk patients. I'm glad that you make it so clear. You know, guidelines have, have said that statins are overall safe. Even I've learned from hepatologists that there's a lot of beneficial effects of uh, statins on on hepatocyte metabolism. So we also did a small perspective studies that followed people mm -hmm. for three years, yeah, right. published in JCM, and it was safe. So I, I always say if you're uncertain, just start low and slow, but keep them on a statin because uh, many studies have shown that they have about a two to threefold higher risk of, of cardiovascular disease. So right. this is something really, really key. Now, Within this context, I mean, um, lifestyle can also help quite a bit. So why don't you give us some pointers about how you see lifestyle in the context of uh, fatty liver disease or patients that have uh, NASH and, and, and advanced fibrosis? Well, Ken, you've uh, rung an important bell for us to be listening to. You know, lifestyle is a critical strategy for management of all cardiometabolic risk, including non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And here it's not so much the quality of the diet, in other words, the balance between 
carbohydrate, lipid, and protein, although we would prefer the patient not eat a high level of simple sugars if they have insulin resistance and or diabetes or metabolic syndrome. But ultimately, it's the quantity of the caloric intake and the physical activity to follow. So we really want our patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease to lose some weight. And whether this is simply a lifestyle intervention with a restriction of calories and some increase in physical activity, or whether there are steps going beyond that. But we'd like to see at least the 5% weight reduction, Ken, and perhaps 10% would be better to reduce the presence of lipid in the liver. Yeah. And as you know, Bob, I mean, people have tried different diets. And I think the take nowadays of, uh, of many societies is just give a diet that they can stick with and lose weight. And, you know, the Mediterranean diet has proven time again and again to, to work. Now, how in your clinic, when do you decide to send people to bariatric surgery? Is there any, any, anything that sticks in your mind that we would like the audience to hear about? Well, Ken, this is an evolving platform of, uh, of intervention, I think. Bariatric surgery used to be restricted to people with BMIs above 40 or 35 with additional risk factors. But now we're seeing even an early onset type 2 diabetes that bariatric or metabolic surgery may be very effective in people with BMIs between 30 and 35. This may not be reimbursed, but I think we need to be more zealous in considering when a patient should be seen by a metabolic surgeon. And by the way, when we send our patients to surgery, that doesn't mean they're in their operating room. We're getting the advice, hopefully from an experienced bariatric surgeon who can help the patient make a decision going forward. But as primary care physicians, we need to be more more animated in terms of that referral pattern going forward. Yeah, so, so that's exactly what we do here. We have a big bariatric surgery program and we combine it with uh, an, uh, an obesity management program in which we combine uh, you know, uh, structured, uh, behavioral modification programs and weight loss medications. And as we put in our clinical care pathway, uh, Bob, with your help to, to offer weight loss to everybody, but more, even more aggressively, if you identified, identify advanced fibrosis. So having advanced fibrosis puts you on a path to cirrhosis. So we have to be more aggressive. So the key concept that we have discussed before is for people screening for fatty liver, we're not so concerned about just a fatty liver, really concerned from a liver perspective in preventing cirrhosis. So um, there are few treatments that have worked for people with steatohepatitis with NASH and fibrosis. So how do you think we should, uh, recently with the approval of semaglutide for obesity and the study that was published in November in New England, on NASH, where do you think that we're going to be uh, placing our diabetes medications in the management of these patients? Well, that's a great question, Ken. You've worked uh, exclusively in this space for many years. And I <laughs> I think that really one of the important uh, issues to bring up here is that the FDA currently has no drugs approved for the treatment of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NASH. So we've really got to uh, attend ourselves to when we're using drugs, we're using them kind of uh, outside FDA approval. Now, in, in terms of the treatment of patients with diabetes or maybe at high risk for diabetes with metabolic syndrome, I mean, pioglitazone is something you've used and we've all used to some extent and modified liver fat in terms of content. Now, NASH is fibrosis and fibrosis leads to cirrhosis and ultimately in some patients to hepatocellular carcinoma. So, 
So now what are the other options? Well, I think one of the exciting new players in this game is semaglutide, which creates tremendous amount of weight loss. Now, the question comes up, and Ken, you maybe can address this yourself, is the benefit of semaglutide simply on the weight reduction, or is, in fact, does it go beyond that by other mechanisms? What are, you, what are your thoughts about that? <laughs> Great question. So we have been debating this quite a bit. As you know, before, a number of studies show with liraglutide, uh, reductions in liver fat, and a small pilot study had some histological benefit. Uh, I have to say also there's a study with uh, other, uh, with dulaglutide, little pilot studies with exenatide. So the take of these studies plus the semaglutide that I, our center, and I'm a co-author in that November paper in the New England showed is that, that the vast majority of the benefit, at least in the, in the semaglutide trial that showed that up to 60% of people had resolution of NASH, um, it's largely from weight loss. So we are presenting an abstract at the liver meeting in November that looked at this data in more depth. And it's the majority is from weight loss. So it's a little bit puzzling, I would say. You know, Ken, I grew up in medical school, and that's a long time ago now, really to be taught that fibrosis was irreversible. <laughs> and, and I know the liver is an organ that can regenerate and do all kinds of fancy things. Almost every other organ doesn't except the gut and the bone marrow. But nevertheless, all that aside, the liver is very special and you're privileged and we're benefiting from your privilege to work in that space. But anyway, why can we change fibrosis in the liver? but we can't change it in other tissues where scars develop. What, what are your thoughts about that? Wow, that's a tough one. So that, that talks to what uh, is talk about plasticity. Well, I think, to be honest, and again, this could all be a matter of debate and controversy, but I think there's a threshold where you still have these uh, this ability to reverse fibrosis. So even see people have a, a pathologist observed that when you have early cirrhosis, that can reverse to less severe stages overall. For example, yes. in hepatitis C, with the new drugs, cirrhosis tends to reverse or, or, or hold or not advance further, definitely. So it can reverse. And when you are in moderate stages of fibrosis that we call F2 or even F3, this can reverse. And we have observed that with pioglitazone, and it's being observed with some new drugs that are in early stages of development. The only frustrating thing is semaglutide did not reverse fibrosis that we would have expected. And then there's debate whether it's the pathology reading or not. However, for the audience, this is a, there's an important concept to keep in mind. Even if you halt fibrosis and it doesn't progress any further, you have done a great service to the patient because the vast majority are going to die of cardiovascular disease. Sure, absolutely. And lifestyle, pioglitazone, semaglutide, all reduce cardiovascular disease. So it is critical that you identify patients with fibrosis to treat this with drugs that will have all these cardiometabolic benefits. How, how do you see this, Bob? Well, I think that's a mistaken or at least an ignorant aspect of primary care. I'm not being critical here. I'm just saying that the independent relationship of fatty liver disease, NASH, and fibrosis to cardiovascular disease is really not apparent to many primary care physicians. And I think that's a message we need to continue to promote. And that's why we keep the statins going. That's why semaglutide, pioglitazone are agents that make a lot of sense based on what we know about their benefit 
and people with high risk or with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So Ken, that's an important point for us to make here today, for sure. Yeah, yeah, Bob, that's important. So so many times uh, I get this point said, well, we don't have any drugs for fatty liver. Why should I worry about this? That is true. But number one, when you have somebody with diabetes and you have to choose the diabetes medication, if you know that they have NASH and fibrosis, you would choose drugs that have benefit. For example, there are now five studies of pioglitazone that have all shown that about two-thirds have improvement in the inflammation and fibrosis improves in, in has improved in some studies. So the and it also reduces cardiovascular disease. So if you have somebody with diabetes and you know that they have NASH with fibrosis, you would choose drugs like semaglutide or pioglitazone. And again, when we use pioglitazone, we use a max dose in these trials to see a max effect. But I currently start with 15 milligrams that basically yeah. doesn't induce weight gain. And then if the patient is doing well, you, you bump it up to 30 and, and see. And by the way, you can also combine it with semaglutide and lifestyle, and which will anyway promote weight loss. But again, in, in your view, Bob, how can we get primary care doctors and I would say endocrinologists to think more about NASH and to treat it? Well, I think we need to have uh, a low threshold for screening for NASH to begin with. So that people need to be aware of this. And I think for every patient being seen in an endocrine clinic who has type 2 diabetes, ultimately liver tests should be part of that, um, you know, comprehensive metabolic panel up front. And of course, if the liver tests are normal, I'm sure other podcasts have indicated that that may not mean that the patient doesn't have fatty liver disease. So, yeah, regarding that, I, I hope the ADA will be a little bit more aggressive because the ADA current guidelines for our audience is that you would um, screen for uh, steatohepatitis or fibrosis if you have fatty liver in an imaging study, which may not be strictly related to your visit, but you identified it in your electronic right. medical record or liver enzymes are elevated. However, we published this year in Diabetes Care that the vast majority have liver enzymes that are below 40. So normal ALT is 19 in women and 30 in men. So I think that uh, ADA should say, well, you have to have a FIB4, which is free, comes out of age, liver enzymes, and platelets. You know, you can't be free, and you go to a web browser, and it'll give you a number that can tell you if the patient has fibrosis or not. And if it's less than 1.3, you're good. Yeah. Greater than 1.3, worry. And then you can do some imaging like elastography or fiber scan. And this is important that we get this training because I think there are a lot of new drugs coming down the pipeline. Um, what do you well, think, Bob? Well, you know, the other point I want to make about pioglitazone is you've uh, really indicated the lower dose may be effective. And, you know, one thing that even that the lower dose does, you see some body fat redistribution. So the fat in the liver does uh, become less, but not only that, but maybe the visceral depot tends to change a bit. The liver may see less inflammatory, pro-inflammatory cytokines, and that may reduce the inflammation. And moreover, there's not much systemic weight gain, not much edema, and the bones are protected at low dose. So I think that's another message we, we really need to, to get across. Yeah. So low dose may not be in any way harmful, but be beneficial for a plethora of downstream effects that patients with fatty liver disease can ultimately have accomplished in, in their care. You know that, that I'm, I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because we just are about to have an acceptance on a paper looking at visceral fat with pioglitazone in patients with NASH. And guess what? 
visceral fat goes down. Histology improvement is directly related to this uh, reduction in visceral fat. And again, the 15 milligram, all the side effects on bone, all the debate that has happened with bladder cancer are all dose dependent. Uh, And 18 out of 23 studies have been negative about bladder cancer. Mm -hmm. And again, these are things that you have to look at, maybe do a bone density at baseline, do uh, uh, a urinalysis. But again, the 15 milligram dose is very safe and it does lower A1C by 0.6 to 0.8%. So it has benefits, it's safe, and it helps you become familiar with a drug that has, you know, got the backlash of rosiglitazone. Well, you know, Ken, we're almost sounding like Ralph the Franzo here right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, but you'll be so funny that it's just, uh, it just uh, had a stigma that that is almost impossible yeah. to reverse. Well, but I would invite the speakers to try the 15 milligram. I mean, this you you won't get any acute effect. These are things you can control over time. And more surprisingly, I get people say, oh, you're going to cause heart failure. But if you don't have pre-existing heart disease, you improve left ventricular function. I mean, you know, Bob, all this. What do you think? Oh, for sure. Yes. I mean, the pyoglitazone in low dose may be a little less effective than modifying biomarkers of cardiovascular disease, but it does modify them in the right direction. So uh, no question, it's an important strategy to utilize. But now with the new GLP-1 receptor agonist, particularly at high dose with more weight reduction, as your study indicated, ultimately, that's another thing to seriously consider. And, and finally, what about the SGLT2 inhibitors? Uh, are they potentially useful here? The amount of weight loss with SGLT2 inhibitors is clearly not as high, but the benefits for hospitalization for heart failure and progression of renal disease have been clearly documented now with that class of drugs. So your, your thoughts about that class, Ken? Yeah, well, that that's a great Great point. I think, you know, we, chronic kidney disease is much more common in people with fatty liver and fatty liver and diabetes than those without. So it's a great fit. Um, their fatty liver is associated with subclinical, what was used to be called diastolic dysfunction or now, uh, hep, heart hep. failure with preserved, yeah, hep, hep, preserved ejection yeah. fraction. Mm-hmm. So you are treating that and, Specifically for the liver, we have done a study with canagliflozin, but this has been shown with EMPA and dapagliflozin. There's about a 20% placebo subtracted reduction in liver fat and imaging, and it's likely to have other benefits. We don't have any biopsies, but, you know, studies combining, for example, PIO with uh, EMPA have shown a net weight loss over time. There's an additive weight loss if you use it with uh, GLP-1. I, I, I think they're going to be added as a great, um, great benefit to these people. I mean, I use it all the time with a lot of, with a lot of benefit. You know, another point that I think is worth making is that, you know, if you think of the drugs out there that we treat diabetes with, ultimately there's really only one major insulin sensitizer. Yes, metformin has some insulin sensitization, but it does nothing to the natural history of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. But pioglitazone represents the thiazolidine dion class, and that's really the only drug approved that modifies insulin resistance favorably, meaning makes the patient more insulin sensitive. And if you think about it, fatty liver disease, in addition to a lot of other metabolic complications of type 2 diabetes, relate to the insulin resistance. So that, that's another yeah. rationale to give pioglitazone more frequently to these patients. And I've used it for years in my clinic 
to treat patients with insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes? Well, as I'd like to, to explain to fellows and, and young uh, endocrinologists in our university at, at University of Florida, it makes you metabolically healthy. Uh, in the sense that by keeping fat in the proper stores, subcutaneous tissue, yes. it prevents ectopic fat accumulation that causes the typical dyslipidemia, triglycerides go down, HCL can go up, the heart works better. And I think we, we need to begin reassessing it and using it in combination, as you said, with GLP-1 or with SGLT-2 to reach this goal. Now, for the audience, again, none of these drugs is FDA approved for fatty liver, but you can use it into the concept of diabetes. The other question I get, what do we do with those without diabetes? Well, pioglitazone has shown to work equally well, but again, not approved for people without diabetes. Semaglutide with its obesity indication would be a nice approach. And just from an educational perspective, vitamin E, 800 units a day, has showed benefit in a, in a large, well-done study called PIVENS, published in the New England in 2010. There's still always a doubt about whether it can worsen cardiovascular disease or there's a debate about prostate cancer. Bob, what do you think about the cardiovascular disease and vitamin E? Well, I think that story is still out, but not very convincing at this point in time. I, I would not recommend high-dose vitamin E for anything but non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and that would be in people without diabetes. Uh, not people with diabetes. Well, vitamin E, we tested it with pioglitazone uh, or uh, or alone, and, and it had mixed results. It had modest benefits and not any greater than just using pioglitazone. So that's why in people with diabetes, I, I don't use it. Hmm. Now, to close, I mean, the, I would like the audience to know that the other reason why you have to develop a routine of screening for fatty liver in the same way you do for retinopathy or retinephropathy is because there are a number of new drugs. And um, I don't want to bore the audience with a number of new agents, but um, there are agents, for example, dual agonists that can promote uh, weight loss. Bob, is there any of the new agents that in your mind uh, you, you, you think might be more promising? Well, kind of the, the twins, so they're called of uh, GLP-1 and also um, the GLP-1 receptor agonist and GIP is a combination therapy we're going to hear a lot about at upcoming scientific sessions this week and the weekend at uh, the American Diabetes Association. So that's a new combination that seems to show potentially additional promise for various aspects of metabolic diseases, including not only glycemic control, but perhaps even non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So that's certainly something we should be thinking about. The important aspect of, of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease relates to the ultimate uh, fibrotic development that occurs in the liver. And I think, you know, drugs that modify the fat content, but may not modify the existence of fibrosis or the, the, the progression of fibrosis are drugs that we're going to be a, a little less likely to use ultimately once we know more about the natural history of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH. Yeah, that's a great point. So the FDA asks you to modify either dramatically inflammation or reverse fibrosis. And again, um, in that sense, some big classes of drugs like FXRs have been right. uh, considered like antifibrotics, but they've fallen a little bit short of their target. Um, there's FGF21s of different classes. Right. Right. Again, they've shown effects on fat, but we're still learning about their, if they can meet the well, FDA target. 
And then there's there's a new drug, uh, uh, lanifibranor, that is a PPAR alpha delta gamma that had had very promising results in 2020 presented at the liver meeting. It's supposed to be like uh, like the uh, uh, upgraded version of, of pioglitazone, and it has shown to be uh, pretty impressive. Um, so uh, there are a number of other drugs. There's an AMP kinase activator called PXL770. But I think that for the audience, if they focus on choosing the diabetes medications we have plus lifestyle, um, there's a key thing that you can do today. So, Bob, we're going to try to close here. What would be your, your last uh, message for, for our audience that has to take care of these patients tomorrow? Well, my message for the primary care physician, actually even endocrine people and cardiologists too, I think, need to be in this space. They need to screen for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And if that ALT is elevated, we may need to make sure that we rule out other causes of liver disease. We didn't mention that, but that's really an important step. But once other causes are eliminated, then ultimately, I think we need to progress to understand how much fat's in the liver and ultimately use the, the FIB4 to discern whether the patient's at low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk, and move on from the algorithm we're going to be publishing. In fact, I think the article's in press now, isn't it, Ken, for people to turn to. The, the figure three there is an incredibly important figure for primary care physicians to have in their offices and on their walls or on their desk. So Yeah, yeah, Bob. So there's a call to action that summarizes the state of knowledge uh, that is simultaneously being published in gastroenterology, diabetes care, obesity, uh, the journal metabolism. And, and all of these are going to try to convey the message that we need multidisciplinary teams Screening is here to stay, particularly those at the highest risk, people with obesity and diabetes. And the clinical care pathways that Bob is, is mentioning that are going to come out in gastroenterology very soon summarize in three simple figures what we have to do. Well, you know, Ken, one, one thing I've promoted for a number of years now, working with my colleague Mike Blahaus, a preventive cardiologist at Johns Hopkins, is the development of a new medical subspecialty called cardiometabolic medicine. Now, that name has been changed by my renal colleagues to cardiorenal metabolic medicine, but I think we could change it to cardio hepatology metabolic renal medicine. So whatever, I think, you know, this type of comprehensive clinic should probably include someone with expertise in liver disease that also complements nephrology, cardiology, and endocrinology. That that is a great point. To be honest, I, I when I teach, I get I say there's a triangle of care: heart, kidney, and the liver. The liver is still a little bit behind, but hopefully we'll catch up. I've been uh, many times people kid kid me saying that I'm a gastroendocrinologist, but in reality, I mean, it, care is becoming more complex. But the good thing is that the medicine we have for diabetes are the more promising to treat these three targets. So. Bob, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, and uh, keep doing the great job that you're doing. Thank you for all. I have to say to the audience, Bob was instrumental in getting uh, our white paper in all these journals and in the clinical care pathways. And uh, hopefully this has helped the audience uh, manage uh, or understand better why fatty liver uh, is important. And uh we hope to hear from you soon. And Bob, any final thoughts for us? Well, nothing other than more aggressive and zealous screening in the clinic. And ultimately, once 
the disorder has been identified, excess liver fat, perhaps with NASH, with, and you know, there you're not quite sure without a biopsy, but anyway, all that aside, we need to get these people to lose weight. That's probably the most critical and important thing for the primary care physician to do. So I'll leave that with a take-home message, get some weight down for a multiplicity of reasons, but for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, for lipids, for glucose tolerance, inflammation, and everything else it relates to. Good luck. This is tough, but good luck. We've got a lot of helps to bring you along the path of success in that area. Thank you, Bob. We can't give up now in our patients, and I think we have better tools, as I like to say, We've never had better tools to take care of our patients as we have today uh, from our understanding of the disease and the pharmacological options. So thank you, Bob. Thank you all, uh, you on the other side, and uh, let's get back to work. Thank you, Fasihan Jay, and special thanks to my guest, Bob Eckel. Thank you all for joining us for this episode on managing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH. You can find the other five episodes in this series, uh, the NASH Clinical Care Pathway, and more resources at the program's website at nash.gastro.org. Thank you for listening today. Visit nash.gastro.org to get your CME credits and find clinical pearls and a full transcript of this episode. Be sure to listen to the other five podcasts in this series on NAFLD and NASH covering important topics like diagnosis, management, and team-based care. Also at nash.gastro.org, you can download our NASH app to help you apply what you've learned in clinical practice. Thanks also to our sponsor, the American Gastroenterological Association, and for the medical education grant from Novo Nordisk.